0: Welcome to Calvary Albuquerque. We pursue the God who is passionately pursuing a lost world. We do this with one another. Through worship, by the word, to the world. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you. I've, I've heard so much about this uh, great church over the years, and I've uh, admired it from a distance, so it surely is a great privilege to be here today and to be in this pulpit, and it's certainly a privilege and an honor that I don't take lightly. I want to thank your uh, pastor especially for inviting uh, me and my wife to spend this weekend with you, and uh, I pray that uh, God's hand of blessing will be upon him as he's away to, to energize him and refresh him and to bring him back uh, to you all safely. Well, if you turn in your Bibles with me this morning, we want to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. It's a passage that we'll start with. We'll kind of go through this passage, but we'll kind of branch out from it. But we have the opportunity this morning to read the inerrant, inspired Word of God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, Paul has been talking there about life after death. He's been talking about the new body that we're going to receive someday in the future. And then as kind of a capstone on that teaching, he begins in verse 9 and says, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. May the Lord write these eternal truths upon our hearts this morning as we study God's Word together. Some of you may have heard of Buffalo Bill Cody, a famous figure in the West back in the late part of the 19th century. They had a, he had a great Wild West show called Buffalo Bill's Wild West and they toured around America drawing great crowds, but in the late 1800s they went over for a tour to Europe. And uh, in 1899, they came to Berlin, Germany. And uh, there in Berlin, uh, the people there uh, turned out by the thousands to see uh, this Wild West show. And one of the main attractions at Buffalo uh, Bill's Wild West show was Annie Oakley. Uh, She was a great sharpshooter. In fact, she was known as Little Sure Shot. She was such a great sharpshooter, you could throw up playing cards in the air some distance away, and she could shoot them in half. You could throw a coin in the air 27 yards away, and she could shoot it out of the air. Now, one of her tricks was to uh, put a rifle on her shoulder to have a mirror and to shoot an apple at some distance away. But her her favorite sharpshooting trick was, is that during her uh, time, she would uh, ask for a, uh, a volunteer from the audience to come up with a lit cigar with ashes on the end, and she'd shoot the ashes off the end of the cigar. Well, you can imagine she didn't get very many volunteers, so her husband was always there, a man named Frank Butler, and Frank would always act like he was an anonymous person there and raise his hand, and he would come up with this lit cigar, and she'd take her 45 Colt pistol and shoot the ashes right off the end of the cigar. Well, when they were in Berlin, Germany, she asked for a volunteer to come forward for uh, this part of the act. And to her surprise and the surprise of everyone there, a man volunteered, and he just happened to be the newly crowned German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II. Well, now, she was pretty nervous about this, and so he gets up there and puts a big fat cigar in his mouth and ashes on the end, and she's very nervous, but she takes her 45 Colt pistol and shoots the ashes right off the end. And, of course, there's wild applause. Everyone's excited. He was impressed as well. But the story goes that 15 years later, of course, Kaiser Wilhelm is the one who plunged the world into World War I with all the, the death and the devastation and the carnage that came with that. And Annie Oakley wrote him a letter during the time of World War I. And in the letter, she wrote to him and asked for another opportunity to take a shot. (laughs) And as the story goes, she uh, never did receive a reply back from him for that. But I've thought about that story quite a bit, and it really teaches all of us a very important lesson in life. And the lesson is this. You only get one shot at life. There aren't any do-overs in life. There's no dress rehearsal. We get one shot in life, and it's incumbent upon each one of us to take dead aim, to make that shot that we have count for Jesus Christ. Because according to the Bible, the day is coming for every one of us when we're going to have to stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives, to give an account of what we did with that one shot at life that God gave to us. We're all going to face, according to the Word of God, a final examination and it's called in Scripture the Judgment Seat of Christ. And what I want to do in our time together is to, to answer five key questions about the Judgment Seat of Christ. And these questions are, uh, who's going to be there? Who are the participants? Uh, when is the Judgment Seat going to take place? What is the period of the Judgment Seat? And then look at the, the place of the Judgment Seat. Where is it going to be? And then look at why we're going to appear there. And this is the purpose of it. And then I want to focus at the end most of our time on the preparation for it. Or how do we get ready for this final examination that each of us are going to face? We begin here in our passage with the who or the participants. Notice in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now the we there includes Paul. And I think this is a judgment uh, for believers only. There's another judgment the Bible speaks of. In fact, there are several judgments, but the other main one is in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And that judgment will be at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on the earth. And all the unbelievers of all the ages are going to appear there before the Lord uh, to be judged for their sins. It's where the lost are going to appear. Those who've rejected Christ as their Savior. And the judgment seat of Christ is not that judgment. It's a judgment that's going to occur in heaven after we've been caught up to be with the Lord. So the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for believers. The great white throne judgment is a judgment for unbelievers. But notice here he says, for we must all appear. It's not optional. It's a necessity. We have to appear there at the judgment seat of Christ. So every person here this morning is going to appear at one of two great future judgments. You're either going to stand before the Lord at that great white throne as a lost person without Christ to be cast into the lake of fire. Or you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a believer to be rewarded for the things that you've done. Now, he says here, we must all appear. And the word all there, I understand this to be only church-age believers. Now, you say, well, what's a church-age believer? Well, the church started on the day of Pentecost with the, the coming of the Spirit, the descent of the Spirit, and it's going to end at the rapture of the church. So all the believers who are saved during that age are going to be caught up at the rapture. I take it that Old Testament saints, those who who died before uh, the Church Age began, they're not going to be resurrected till the end of the tribulation period. Uh, you see that in uh, Daniel chapter twelve, uh, verses one to three. Also in First Thessalonians four sixteen, when it talks about those who are going to be taken at the rapture, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. And Old Testament saints were not in Christ. That's a a unique feature of this church age where we are united with Jesus Christ by uh, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. So I take it that this is looking at a judgment for believers during this church age. Now notice here, no one is exempt. Paul says, we must all appear. And then he switches from the plural to the singular. And he says that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So it's going to be individual. In uh, Romans 14.10, Paul says, For we must all stand before the judgment seat of God, so that each one shall give an account of himself to God. So we're going to have to sing solo before God someday. It's not like being in a choir where you got a whole bunch of people that can drown out your bad voice. You're going to have to sting solo before God. Each one of us is going to have to give an account to God for what we did with that one shot at life that He gave to us. Now, the next thing we see here is the place of this judgment. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The place of this judgment is the judgment seat, or uh, the Greek word there is the word bema. The Bema Seat of Christ. And a Bema back in that day was a a step or a raised platform. It was a tribunal where you had to have steps to ascend uh, to that place. And so really this platform I'm standing on right now is a Bema. It's a a raised platform. You You have to come up steps to get here. And every major Greek and Roman city had a Bema in the marketplace. And this is a a picture that I took of the the Bema seat in uh, the Agora or the marketplace of ancient Corinth. You can see it back there in the background a bit. And then here's a close-up of it. That's the Acro-Corinth in the the background where the Temple of Aphrodite was. And all that's about 2,000 feet high there. But according to Acts 18.12, Paul stood in front of that judgment seat. So when you go there to Corinth today and stand there, Paul was actually there at one time. But you see, when Paul tells the believers at Corinth, you're going to have to stand before the Bema seat of Christ, that's something they could relate to. They saw a judgment seat or a Bema seat down in their marketplace every day. And it's called here the judgment seat of Christ because Christ will be the judge there. In John 5.22, Jesus says, "...for not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son." So we'll be judged at the bema seat of Christ by uh, our Lord himself. Now, the third question about the judgment seat is when is it going to happen? What's the period of it? We won't turn there, but in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it says this. When the Lord comes, when the Lord comes, I take this as referring to the rapture. When the Lord comes, he's going to bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. And He's going to disclose the motives of men's hearts. So it's when the Lord comes that this judgment's going to take place. So my view is that one of these days the rapture is going to take place and the, the, the believers who are alive are going to be caught up to heaven. I like to say we're going to get an airlift and a facelift at the same time. I and mean, we're going to go up and be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And those who've died, their bodies are going to be raised and rejoined with their perfected spirits. So we caught up to meet the Lord. And during that time, the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation, is going to be raging on the earth. So we're going to be caught up at the rapture. The tribulation will be going on on earth. And we will be in heaven, and it will be the judgment of believers there uh, for their works. That's where I see this judgment seat taking place. So the first order of business... After we get caught up to be with the Lord, it's going to be for us to stand before Him, to give an account for what we did with that one shot at life that He gave to us. In uh, Revelation twenty two twelve, uh, some of the last words of Jesus, He said this, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to what he's done. He says, look, I'm going to come back. And the first thing that's going to happen is the rewards are going to be given. Everyone's going to be called to account. So the participants in this judgment are every church-age believer. The place of it is in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. The period of it is right after uh, the rapture. Now, that brings us to the fourth question. Why is there going to be a judgment seat? Now, before we look at what the judgment seat, the purpose of it is, let's say what the purpose is not. The judgment seat or the Bama seat is not to determine if we get into heaven or not. The issue at the judgment seat is not going to be where you're spending eternity, but how you will spend eternity. See, the issue at the judgment seat is not our salvation, but its rewards. And we need to keep these things very clear and distinct in our minds. Salvation, our salvation is based on the work of Christ for us. Our rewards are based on our works for Jesus Christ after we've trusted in Him. And we can't get those things mixed together. You know, it's it's tragic. Most people you go ask, do you think you're going to go to heaven? If they say yes, and you say why, they say what? Because I'm a good person, right? I've done some good things. So the good outweighs the bad. That's the wrong answer according to the Bible. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In Romans 4, 5, Paul said, It's not to the one who works, but him who believes that God justifies uh, the ungodly. So let me ask you this question this morning, a very important question. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Him apart from any hope whatsoever in your works? Any one of us here who will ever be saved, we will never be saved by our doing, but will be saved by His dying. We're never going to be saved by our merit. We're saved completely and wholly by His mercy. If you've never seen how bankrupt you are before God, then this morning may God impress that upon you. And you recognize that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but that Jesus Christ came when He died on the cross. He purchased a full pardon for you from all your sin. And all you have to do is to take it. Amen. So if you've never done that, the Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And at the end of the service, there's going to be some pastors down front here that would love to talk with you about that. If you want to come forward and to talk with them about uh, your salvation, your need for Jesus Christ as your Savior. So the purpose of this judgment is not to see if we get into heaven. That was decided when we trusted Christ. So you say, well, what is the purpose of the judgment seat? Well, notice here in verse 10, the middle of the verse, he says that or in order that here's the purpose that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So the purpose of the judgment seat is for each one of us to be reviewed and to be rewarded for our service and our ministry to Christ to be evaluated. To receive, here it says a recompense, or to receive what's due. So it's an evaluation of our life as a believer to determine the rewards we're going to receive. Now, the difficulty with this verse is that last phrase. It says, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, the good stuff, we all know what that is. That's the good things we've done for the Lord. But what's the bad here that's going to be brought up? There's a word in Greek for bad that means evil. That's not the word that's used here. There's another word in Greek that's, that's used for bad, and it means bad in the sense of worthless or useless. That's the word that's used here. Um, I like to use that for my golf game. It's pretty worthless most of the time and useless. You can use this for your golf game. It's the Greek word phallos. It's worthless. And he's saying here that there are some things that we're going to appear before the Lord that He's not going to reward us for, Not because they were sinful things, but because they're worthless. So what does that mean? Well, look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's another passage in uh, the Corinthian letters that deals with this topic, I believe, of uh, of the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, and look down at verse 11. Paul says, "...for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." That's true of a church. The only foundation for a church is Jesus Christ. And the only foundation for an individual believer for our life is Jesus. Everything has to be built on Him. He, he's the solid rock. But he says, now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. He said, look, there's different kind of material you can choose to build with. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Notice not the quantity of it, but the quality of it. If any man's work which he's built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So over in uh, Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 when he says he's going to reward us according to what we've done, whether good or bad, the good is the gold, the silver, the precious stones, that which is rewardable. The bad is the wood, the hay, and the straw, or that which is unrewardable. And it says here that the unrewardable stuff is going to be burned up. Now, notice we aren't burned up, but our deeds are. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Old J. Vernon McGee, one of my favorite old preachers, he used to say at the judgment seat of Christ, many of us are going to smell like we were bought at a fire sale. I mean, we're going to make it through, though, it says. We're going to make it through the judgment, but uh, because sins aren't going to be an issue there. But we're going to suffer the loss of these things. Now, here's an important thing again to remember. At the judgment seat of Christ, our sins are not going to be brought up there. I used to have this idea when I was a little boy that you're going to appear there and everybody's going to be there and like on a big screen like over here, God's going to put up every bad thing you ever did and every sordid thought you ever had. I mean, it was just the most terrifying thing you can imagine. But Jesus paid for our sins. They're not going to be brought up. In John 5:24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but they pass from death to life. Our sins have been paid for. In uh, Romans 8, 1, it says, There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're not going to have condemnation for our sins, but evaluation of our service. I love that old song, It Is Well With My Soul. There's that one verse of the song that says this, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, My sin, not in part, but the whole, Is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, Oh my soul. What a beautiful thought that is. Our our sins have been nailed to the cross. We're not going to face judgment for our sins. But if these bad things that are going to be brought up at the judgment seat aren't sins, then what are they? Well, I like to call them bad good works. Now, I know that's kind of an oxymoron. But they're things that we did for the Lord, but they're bad because the motive wasn't right. You see, God doesn't just look at what we do, but God looks at why we do it. God knows why we do what we do. So there, there are things that we did for Him, but we did them with the, wrong, with, with the wrong motive. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, again, that verse I quoted earlier, says, when the Lord comes, He's going to bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and He's going to disclose the motives of men's hearts. God's going to disclose why we did what we did. It's a story I like about a group of children that were lined up in a the the lunch line in a cafeteria at a Catholic elementary school. And at the beginning of the line, as they were going through, there was a, a, a pile of apples there. And one of the nuns had placed a sign there that said, Take only one and remember God is watching So they went through the line there, and then when they got to the end, there was a big pile of chocolate chip cookies, and one of the students had written a sign and put it there, and it says, Take all you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) Now, God's watching the apples and the cookies, isn't He? The Bible tells us God knows everything. God's omniscient. And here's a very sobering thought for you to think about and for me as well. God not only sees to us, God sees through us. God knows why we do what we do. God knows our motives. Now, you might be thinking at this point in this sermon, well, I'm doomed, I'll get into heaven, but I'm not going to get any reward when I get there. Well, look, I understand what you're feeling because at my best, I can't think of anything that I do without some of Mark Hitchcock in it, without with 100% pure motives. I mean, maybe there's some things I do now and then that I just do so quickly, I don't have time to think about it, that I may do with 100% pure motives. But we're such fallen, depraved creatures. We get ourselves all mixed up, it seems to me, liking about everything we do. But I'm convinced for you and for me, any reward we receive when we get to heaven is going to be purely by the grace of God. But God is going to reward us. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it's that verse I've quoted a couple of times. The very last phrase says this, though. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. And I love that statement because, again, it's in the singular. Each person's praise is going to come from God. And I think that means God is going to find something in the life of every believer to reward and to praise us for. And this boggles my mind to think that the Lord of the ages, the creator of the universe, the shepherd of the stars is going to praise me someday in heaven and give me reward. Now, that boggles the mind to think that. but That's what it says. Each man's praise will come to him from God. But the key idea here really is this. The person you are today is going to determine the rewards you receive tomorrow. The Bible tells us this is training time for reigning time. It's training time now for that time will reign with him. Your life here and now and my life here and now will impact our life and our existence for all of eternity. It matters greatly what we do with that one shot that God gives to us. Now, we've answered four questions so far. Who's going to be at the judgment seat? Church age believers. When's it going to happen? It's going to happen after the rapture in heaven. Where's it going to happen at that judgment seat of Christ? There in heaven. And we've seen the why of this judgment. It's to review and to reward uh, our lives. The final issue now I want to focus in on is how do we get ready for that day? I call this uh, the preparation. How do we get prepared for that coming day? Let's pretend like this is a large classroom and it's Friday afternoon and, you know, people's minds are wandering. They're thinking about all kinds of things. And finally, suddenly the teacher says, you know, our, our final exam is going to be on Monday morning. And you're going to face the final examination. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you all the test questions ahead of time for the weekend. Man, you've just hit the bonanza, right? I mean, you pull out your pen. And if you're a halfway decent student at all, you write all those things down so you can save time over the weekend and so you can cram and so you can do well on the test. We know God has scheduled a final exam for each one of us. It's not a pop quiz. God scheduled it. We know it's coming. But God has graciously given us the test questions ahead of time. Now, what I want to do in the time we have left here this morning is give you 12 of the test questions that God is going to use to evaluate us and review us and reward us. Now, we're not going to have time to, to spend a lengthy period on each one of these, but you might write these down as we go through them and the verses there and go back to study these. Because one of these days, you're going to stand before the Lord at that final exam. And these are the things that He's going to review your life for. So let's look at each one of these. We'll go through them rather quickly. The first one is how we treat other believers. How we treat other believers. In Hebrews 6.10 it says this, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward His name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Saying, look, God's going to remember what you've done for God's people and for one another. How we treat one another in the body of Christ is going to be one of the things God is going to review us for. Are we kind and are we gracious and are we loving and forgiving toward one another? That's what God is going to review us for. I I like the old poem I heard years ago. It says, to live above with saints we love, oh yes, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well now that's a different story. And all of us uh, can be cantankerous and hard to get along with sometimes. But what I always ask is, I hope that other people will be gracious to me and kind to me when I fail and when I'm hard to get along with. And I want to try to return that to them. But God's going to judge us for how we treated other believers. A second thing that God is going to examine our lives for is how we employ our God-given talents and abilities and opportunities. God has given abilities and opportunities and and talents to every person here. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus told the parable of the talents. And in Luke 19, He gave the parable of the, the pounds or the minas. And what those two parables have in common is you have a wealthy nobleman. And he's going away for a long time. And it pictures Jesus leaving this world for a long period of time. And he leaves all of his riches and his goods to stewards for them to take care of them and do business with them while he's gone. And then at a point in time, he comes back and he calls them to account to what they've done with what he's given to them. And what that pictures is, is that Christ is going to come back someday and he's going to call you and me to account. What did you do with the talents and with the abilities and with the opportunities that I've given to you? And sadly, many believers, I think, just squander what God has given. And to me, one of the greatest things in life is to see a believer who has talents and abilities and opportunities and see them using that uh, to their full potential. God is going to reward us someday for that. A third thing God's going to judge us for at the judgment seat is how we use our money, how we use our financial resources. In Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now what he's saying there is not that it's bad to save money here on earth. In fact, you go back to Proverbs. uh, He says, look to the ant. You know, the ant saves up in the summer for the winter that's coming. He's saying, no, it's not wrong to possess possessions, but it's wrong for our possessions to possess us. And we need to send what we have, some of it, ahead. You know, people today are always asking me when I speak at prophecy conferences, I guess they think I'm a financial expert as well, but they'll say, well, you know, where should I be putting my money today in these uncertain times in which we live? You know, should I be putting it in stocks or cash or, you know, a guy the other day said, should I be hiding it in my house or, you know, buying gold or whatever else? And my uh, recommendation is always just diversify. That's what the Bible says. Cast your bread out on many waters. But one of the things I always tell people when they ask me that, though, is the surest thing you can do with your money, though, if you want to be sure to get the greatest investment, is send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, the Bible says, but you can send it on ahead. And Jesus said, you can store up treasure in heaven. God will reward us for that someday. A fourth thing God's going to evaluate in our lives is how we endure suffering and trials in life. In James 1, 12, James said this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, look, there's a, a special crown in heaven for those who patiently endure the trials and the difficulties of this life. And I think we all know here today that trouble and problems are the common denominator of mankind. We all have them. We walk into a church and see people coming in, and you think, boy, those people, look how good they look. They don't have the problems I have. Everybody's got problems. Everybody has struggles in life. And Christ is going to evaluate, did we patiently endure? Did we persevere under those trials by His grace? And there's a reward for that in heaven. The fifth thing God's going to reward us for is how we spend our time how we spend our time. Every one of us get 168 hours a week. That's how much time we get. And while theoretically, if you lose money, you can always try to go get some more money. But when time's gone, it's gone. God's going to call us to account for what we did with our time. In Psalm 90, it's the oldest Psalm. It was written by Moses. The, the psalmist there said, Moses said, teach us to number our days so that we can present before you a heart of wisdom. We need to count our days, the Bible tells us, so we can make our days count. We need to count our days. In fact, Hebrews five, or, or, uh, Ephesians 5.16 says, redeeming the time, redeem the time. Buy up the opportunities because the days are evil. There's a story I love. I read years ago about a great Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers. Uh, Earlier in his life, he'd squandered a great deal of his time. He was very frivolous in his life and his ministry. But later on, he was deeply convicted of that and uh, became one of the leading uh, uh, pastors in Scotland and a man that was greatly used of God. And someone later in his life asked him about those wasted years of his early life. And he he made a statement that I love. I've never forgotten it. He says, I had forgotten in my earlier life two magnitudes. I thought not of the littleness of time, and I recklessly thought not of the greatness of eternity. Those are two great magnitudes we need to keep in mind. The littleness of time. And I'll tell you, the older I get, the faster the time seems to go. Life is short. It's pictured in the Bible like a vapor that just comes and goes away, a mist, a a flower that comes forth in the morning and withers in the noonday sun. The littleness of time and the greatness of eternity, two great magnitudes that should grip our lives as we think about how we use our time. The sixth thing God's going to review us for is how we run the particular race that God has given to us. God has given you a race to run, and God is going to evaluate you on how you ran it. In First in Corinthians nine twenty four, Paul says, "Those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Run to win the prize. God has given you a lane to run in. He doesn't want you running over in somebody else's lane and trying to do what they're doing. He's given you a lane. He's given you abilities and talents." And God wants you to stay in that lane, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, and run your race to the glory of God. And you see, I don't have to run your race, and you don't have to run my race. And to me, that ought to free us all up. We don't have to to try to be somebody else or do what someone else is doing. We run the race that God's given us to run, and we're going to be called to account. How did we run that race that God called us to run? A seventh thing the Lord's going to evaluate in our lives, and this is very convicting to all of us, is how effectively we control our body. How effectively we control our body. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I buffet my body. Now, that's not buffet there, that word there that's written. That's not I buffet my body. I do a lot of that. But it's I buffet my body. And that word literally means to beat your body black and blue, to bring it in under discipline. He says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. Lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. And he didn't mean he's going to lose his salvation. The word "they're disqualified is the, the word adakamas in Greek. And it was used of the person in the, the Olympic Games who was, who was declared disqualified from the games. Paul says, look, I can preach to other people, but if I don't bring my body under subjection, I'm going to be disqualified from reward. And look, in our culture where uh, the, the sexual revolution has taken place and we're just literally inundated with sexual images constantly, the appetites of our body have to be brought under control. The, the sexual immorality that's out there, uh, the, the pornography that's out there. May God help especially the younger people who are here to understand the seriousness of this. It talks about the, the appetites of our body. It talks about our appetite for food as well. We're to bring our body into subjection so that we can receive reward. The eighth thing that we see here is how many souls we witness to and win for Christ. In in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus? It is coming. He tells the Thessalonians, he says, One of these days when I stand before the Lord, you all are going to be there, and you're going to be my reward in heaven. Because he'd shared the gospel with them and they'd come to faith in Christ. Now, not every one of us here are evangelists. In fact, probably most of us aren't. We don't have the gift of evangelism. But every one of us can witness to Christ with our lips and with our lives. And my my favorite definition I've ever read of evangelism is it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Isn't that beautiful? You know, we're, we're beggars. We have nothing to offer to God but our sin. But we, when we come to Christ, we found the bread of life. And we find Him. We just go and tell another beggar out there, I found the bread of life. Let me tell you about Him and how He satisfied my soul. How many souls we witness to and win for Christ. God's going to evaluate us on that. Number nine is how much the doctrine of the rapture means to us. In... uh, Second Timothy four eight, right at the end of his life, Paul's just probably a few weeks from death, he says this In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge is going to give to me on that day. But then he says, But not to me only, but all those who've loved his appearing. He's saying if you, if, you, if you look for the rapture and believe Christ could come at any moment and you're living a righteous life in view of that, God is going to give you the crown of righteousness someday when you get to heaven. For those who love His appearing and live in view of that. The tenth thing the Lord's going to judge us for, and this is a sobering one, is how humble we are. How humble we are. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18, verse 4? He says, whoever humbles himself as this little child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In God's economy, the way up is down. In God's economy, down is up and up is down. It's when we humble ourselves that we become great in God's economy. And you know, to, to humble yourself doesn't mean you go around every day thinking about how bad you are. No, it's not thinking about yourself at all. It's being captured every day with the the grandeur and the majesty and the greatness and the infinity of God. And thinking about how you didn't deserve your salvation. In fact, you deserve the opposite. God came in His grace and He saved you. So we think about those things. It's just natural in our lives that we become humble and realize who we really are before the greatness of God. Remember Martin Luther's great quote. He said, God made everything there is out of nothing And if we become nothing, God can make something out of us. we become nothing, God can make something out of us. And He will reward that someday. Well, number 11 of what God will evaluate us for is how faithful we are in our job, our vocation. Colossians 3.22 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. How you do your job, whatever it is, or your vocation, God is going to reward you for that if you've done it heartily, as unto the Lord. It's a great old story I love about H. A. Ironside, the great pastor from the Moody Memorial Church. And when he was a young man, he worked for a man who was a cobbler. He he made and repaired shoes, and he made H. A. Ironside sit in there hour after hour every day, pounding these pieces of leather to get all the water out of them, so they'd be totally dry, so they would make good soles for shoes. And Ironside knew that there was other cobblers in town that didn't do this process. And so one day he asked old Dan McKay, he says, Why do we go through this process? These other guys don't do it. And here's what uh, Dan McKay told this young H.A. Ironside. He says, I don't cobble shoes just for the money I get from my customers. I'm doing this for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. That's a great way to look at life, isn't it? And I don't want the Lord to say to me in that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You didn't do your best here. I want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Then he went on to explain that just as some men are called to preach, he was called to fix shoes. And that he only did this, uh, he did this as well as he could to be a testimony for Christ. And, And Ironside said, this was a lesson I've never forgotten. Often when I've been tempted to carelessness and slipshod effort, I've thought of dear, devoted Dan McKay, and it stirred me to seek to do all that I can for the one who died to redeem me. You know, maybe for me as a pastor, one of these days, I'm going to stand before the Lord, and all my sermons are going to be there in a big pile, and boy, that'd be a terrible sight to see. But if you're an attorney, the cases you've done, or you're a mechanic, the cars you've worked on, or a housewife, the the loads of laundry you've done, and the diapers you've changed, or whatever it is, It's all going to be there, as it were. Did we do what we do heartily as for the Lord? God will reward us for that someday. And by the way, what's the one group of people that are going to receive the strictest judgment at the judgment seat? It's teachers, right? What did James say in James 3.1? Don't let many of you become teachers, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. Heard a guy say one time, if you get to the judgment seat of Christ one of these days and you see a long line, a couple of lines, and one of them has a bunch of preachers in it, go get in the other line, it'll go quicker. And I think that's true because preachers are going to get a stricter judgment. And we're going to be judged, and and, and Bible teachers, we're going to be judged for the accuracy of what we said. But even more sobering is, did we live it out ourselves? We're telling other people things, but did we really live that out in integrity before the Lord? Well, the final thing here that God's going to judge us for is how we use our tongue. It's not too convicting, is it? Matthew 12, Jesus said, Every careless word that men shall speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Now, if you have problems with your tongue, don't blame the tongue. Look deeper. The tongue is the tattletale of the heart. The tongue is the bucket that dips down into the well of the heart and brings out what's down inside. So if you're having problems with what's coming out of your mouth, the problem uh, is down inside your heart. You need your heart to be changed by spending time with God in prayer. I remember hearing a story about a man. He heard that old great song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And he said, every time I hear that song, I wish I had a thousand tongues with which to praise Him. His friend standing next to him, he said, well, not me. He says, I've got enough problems with the one tongue that I have. I think we can probably all relate to that. Well, the final exam for each one of us is coming someday. And those are the main test questions. So my challenge for each of you is to get ready, to start cramming for the test so that you can get an A on your final examination. One final word of encouragement I want to give here is this. You might be here today and maybe you're up in years a little bit, or maybe you're even a younger person, but you're saying to yourself, I've blown my life up to this point. God's given me this one shot at life, and I've wasted most of it up to this point. Or maybe you can say, I've wasted all of it up to this point. And maybe you're feeling very discouraged and in despair here this morning as you hear this message. Let me tell you this, God is gracious in giving rewards. He's more gracious than we can ever imagine. Remember the parable of the, the labors in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus gave? Remember there were some laborers that worked all day. There were some laborers that worked about three-fourths of the day, some about half of the day. And then there was a group that went out just for the last hour. And when it came time to pay the workers, they all got paid the same thing. And one of the lessons, there are a lot of lessons in that parable, but one of them is God is gracious in giving rewards. And so wherever you are in life today, begin to serve Christ with all you have today. It's never too late. Give God what's left of your life and surrender it to Him and He will reward you beyond your wildest dreams. But whatever you do, don't give up. I know your pastor's been giving you a challenge or a dare every week as you all have been going through the book of Daniel. So here's my very simple challenge uh, to all of us today, and it's this. Let's live today in light of that day. Let's live today. Let's live this day in light of that coming day, that coming day when we're going to stand before the Lord for our final examination, that day when we're going to be called to account for what we did with this one shot that God gave to us. Let's live today in light of that day so that when we stand before the Lord, we can hear those greatest of words that can ever fall upon human ears. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we close. Our Father, we come before You now, and we thank You that our salvation is not based on what we've done, but it's based on what Christ has done for us. That it's based solely on that finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's never accepted Christ, that right now, right where they sit, they might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But Father, we thank You for the unspeakable privilege we have to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with our good works. And I pray that the ambition and the aim of everyone here would be to please You. That we wouldn't waste that one shot at life that You give to us. But that we would take dead aim in our lives. We'd use that one shot You've given to us to bring glory to Your great name. May we live today in light of that day. As we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. What binds us together is devotion to worshiping our Heavenly Father, dedication to studying his word, and determination to proclaim our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.